Okay, we are continuing on in the book of Daniel, and today we are in chapter 5. And I'm going to read to you today's scripture reading, which is Daniel 5, 1 to 31. Thank you. Okay, King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets they had been, that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. Then he said to those wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. The queen, hearing the voice of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed, and don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, You may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Your majesty, the most high God, gave your father, Nebuchadnezzar, sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to be put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. 
But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was disposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. Here is what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. And Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Lisa, for reading. Thank you, team, for leading us this morning. Good morning, everyone. As I begin today, let me begin by simply saying, oh my God, what a glorious day it is out there. If you're in the lower mainland, it is sunny. It's kind of like summer is on the way, and it is just awesome. And as I say, oh my God, what a glorious day it is out there, I echo that and say, oh my God, how awesome that we can still do this that we can connect. Even though we're apart, uh, we're still able to connect on a Sunday morning. We're able to worship together. And I'm going to pause just briefly right there because I know what some of you are thinking. Kind of some of you are hung up over my opening line and you're kind of going, did our pastor just blaspheme? Did he literally just say, oh my God? Well, here's the spoiler alert. If you have seen the title for today, the title for this sermon taken out of Daniel chapter 5 is How to Say, Oh My God. And so I hope you will stick with me and not switch off just this yet. For those who might be joining this morning, and and maybe this is the first time you've joined us, or maybe you haven't been with us for months, uh, and you're kind of wondering where are we, what's going on, we've been journeying through the book of Daniel over the last couple of weeks. That's kind of this motif behind me, that throne, it's the image that despite appearances, God is ultimately in control. And as we journey through Daniel, we see these rulers Uh, We see those in power, those who wield over others. And we have the likes of Daniel and his friends who are ultimately exiles, taken from their people, taken from their land. And as they live in this context and as they live in this way, over and over we're reminded God is in control. 
And it's the invitation to us as we read it some few thousand years later to be able to go, okay, well, if God is in control despite present appearances, well, then I can learn to live in the same way that Daniel does and Daniel's friends. I can still be faithful in my calling. I can still worship God. I can still trust God in the midst of everything. And this is exactly what Daniel does. Daniel is faithful. Uh, Daniel serves. Daniel is diligent. Daniel is disciplined. And because of this, we see the hand of God on Daniel. We see the hand of God blessing Daniel. And even in a couple of the chapters, we see the other nobles around Daniel are jealous of him. And that creates all sorts of interesting accounts. But today, we, we're in Daniel chapter 5, and I'm going to unpack it in a few moments, but right off, as we read Daniel chapter 5, for most of us, we should kind of have that little aha moment of, wait a minute, th- that sounds like an expression that we use even today. Uh, the first expression, of course, is the writings on the wall. And we might use that expression today to say that, well, something bad is about to happen, you know, when the writing's on the wall, we know it's the end of something. We know trouble's coming. It's, it's this idiomatic expression we use to say doom is on the way. And that's indeed what it is. The writing on the wall simply means something bad is coming. Uh, it's been in pop culture for nearly a century as artists, movies, music, books, stories, all sorts In fact, I'm reminded just recently of the James Bond movie, Spectre, where Sam Smith sings that song, the writing's on the wall, and it's it's just this powerful song there. And so we have this in pop culture, we have this in our expressions. But not only the writing's on the wall, the second expression we've now summarized as you don't measure up. You know, I love that line, you've been weighed, you've been measured, and you've been found wanting. If any of you have seen A Knight's Tale with Heath Ledger from many years ago, you'll remember that scene in that movie, almost that kind of quoting of Scripture. And of course, when we say someone doesn't measure up, when we use an expression like that, we're saying they're not acceptable. Uh, We're saying there's something missing to them, something missing to their character. All is not as it appears. The writing's on the wall, and you don't measure up. You know, we we read through the whole of Daniel chapter 5, all 31 verses. And and let me tell you, if I had at least another hour, I could spend an hour just going through all the nerd facts in this chapter. Uh, This is one of those chapters where we might read it quickly and sort of go, yeah, okay, we think we know what it's saying, and on we go. But there are so many really cool, interesting facts underneath there. Uh, Very briefly, starting with Belshazzar. You know, Daniel chapter 5 begins abruptly by mentioning Belshazzar. Nebuchadnezzar has been the king through chapters 1 through 4, and and so we're used to Nebuchadnezzar, we understand there, and there's no kind of conclusion to Nebuchadnezzar, just all of a sudden there's this new king. And, And historians have kind of asked, well, who is this Belshazzar individual? And historians ask who he is because there is no reference in Babylonian history. Or at least there was no found reference. There was no found uh, kind of proof of who this guy was. And this was an interesting challenge for Christians. Because Christians would read Scripture and say, we believe God is true. We, We believe His Word is true and without error. So why does Scripture refer to somebody that the history books do not? Well, in 1854... Uh, there were a whole bunch of Babylonian cuneiform kind of archaeological discovery. And in those 
facts where they found them or in those archaeological findings, they discovered a whole bunch of cuneiform inscriptions that spoke about Belshazzar. And interestingly enough, Belshazzar was the eldest son of Nabonidus. Nabonidus was the true king of Babylon at that time, from around 555 to 539. But Nabonidus was sent into exile, and so his son served in his place almost as a regent of his father. And so Nabonidus entrusts the throne to Belshazzar, and suddenly now we discover Belshazzar was a real individual. And so while it might use the language of your father, the king, and speaks about Nebuchadnezzar as your father, that word, that Aramaic word, probably means more ancestor or your forebear. It's not a literal blood father. And so we, we have this individual in history. And here he is throwing a party for a thousand people. And we might kind of go, well, why on earth is he throwing a party? And the reason we ask, why on earth is he throwing a party, is because we know at the end of the chapter, he dies that very night. His life is taken from him. And, and we kind of forget sometimes that warfare in, in this Babylonian era was very different to warfare in our times. In order for him to be killed that night by his opposing forces, it meant the opposing forces were surrounding that city. It meant they were encamped just outside. And yet here he is throwing a party for a thousand people. You know, most scholars, as they journey through that, kind of feel this was probably a, a morale-boosting party. You know, the, we have no idea how long the enemy had been encamped outside, and maybe that was wearing them down. And, and so Belshazzar understands his people are just feeling flat, and so he gets them all together. Hey, everyone, let's have a party. So he calls in all the nobles, calls in all the influences, and, and tries to boost everyone's spirits. But clearly, as we read through this, Daniel's not at this party. Now, we don't know if that's simply because Daniel wasn't invited. Probably, I would say he wasn't invited. Or maybe Daniel got to the point where he was like, well, if this, little, this whippersnapper can do his thing, I'm staying at home. And of course, as he has this party, so this experience happens, and this writing appears on the wall. There's a hand that starts to write on the wall, and, and, and clearly everyone sees it, and everyone sees the words that come in, and they're confused, and, and he's shocked, and, and kind of his knees are knocking in this fear of what's going on, and this causes a commotion, and so enters the queen. The queen hears this commotion, and we know that this isn't Belshazzar's wife. Uh, this is most probably the queen mother. Either it's the wife of Nabonidus or even potentially the wife of Nebuchadnezzar. But this queen mother comes in and, and the queen mother kind of goes, you know what, I've got some experience of strange circumstances and situations being interpreted, of somebody making sense. And she reflects back on the fact that Daniel, one of the exiles, has already done this on more than one occasion. So she encourages Belshazzar and says, go and call Daniel. And then at the end of the chapter, that very night, Belshazzar dies at the hands of Darius the Mede. And thus ends the Babylonian Empire and the rise of the Persian Empire. And now all of a sudden we're thrown back to the beginning of Daniel, where we see Daniel's prophetic vision and his interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream now coming true. Like I said, there are a whole bunch of nerd facts. I'm not going to get derailed by them at the moment. Because the key focus... 
The key interaction is the interaction between Daniel and Belshazzar as Daniel explains the writing on the wall, as Daniel explains what's just happened. Even there, though, it's, it's entertaining to read because Belshazzar belittles Daniel. We might read the verse so quickly and we miss it. But Belshazzar asks Daniel, he says, Are you, Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? Now, because we've been reading through Daniel, and we've kind of gone from chapter 1, 2, 3, 4 into 5, and we've had all this action taking place quickly, for many of us in our minds, we're still thinking back to Daniel chapter 1 and 2, where Daniel was a teenager or a young adult. Daniel's this young man, this young exile. That's not the reality at this point. This is at the end of the Babylonian Empire, which means at this point, Daniel is probably closer to his 70s. He's somewhere between his 60s and 70s. Daniel hasn't just been some exile locked away unknown. Daniel has almost been co-regent. Daniel has had positions of power and influence over Babylon. Belshazzar knows exactly who Daniel is. Belshazzar tries to belittle him. And then Belshazzar offers rewards, and I love the fact that he offers him, you know, this, we're going to clothe you in purple, we'll give you a gold chain, we'll, we'll kind of give you this reward. And Daniel simply responds in verse 17, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Now, I kind of read through that, and I'd like to think Daniel already knew what was coming. Daniel knows this is the end, and Daniel almost listens to this king on the throne, and Daniel's going, well, actually, I know who's really on the throne. And so what you're offering me is just nothing but empty words because your life is going to be taken from you tonight. There is nothing you can give me. This is a pointless offer. And then Daniel reads the words as we've just heard. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. And he interprets them. Mene, being God, has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you've been weighed and found wanting. And Parson or Perez, depending on your translation, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. So the writing is on the wall, and Belshazzar doesn't measure up. But what's it all about? What is this Daniel chapter 5 saying to me? What's it really about well, the reality is it's not a neat three-point application sermon. I can't pull out five things to do to have a better life. But really, as I read through it, I see two main topics coming to the forefront. And these two main topics invite you and I, they invite the reader to read, to meditate, and to contemplate. In fact, as is elsewhere said in Scripture, let the reader understand. Meaning, as we read this, we pray. And we ask the Holy Spirit to lead us into truth. And once we understand the truth, then we orient our lives towards that and we live in such a way as to conform to that truth. Now, the two main themes I see in this chapter are blasphemy and idolatry. Blasphemy and idolatry. And I want to cover those for a few minutes today. Let me start with idolatry. Because it's so painfully obvious in this chapter. Belshazzar worships what has been created and ignores the creator. And we read there, he worships the gods of wood, gold, stone, clay, these man-made symbols of the gods. 
And so he worships and he's, he's practicing idolatry because he believes these gods are the gods that will save him. These gods are the gods that will protect him from the enemy right outside his door. And now, as I said a couple of weeks ago, you and I might not worship the gods of wood, gold, and stone in the same way. But we're confronted with the exact same choice as Belshazzar. Even as we have our own enemies at the door. Even as we have those situations that seem to come in over us and consume us. And we're invited just like Belshazzar. Who will we worship? Will we worship God or will we worship idols? You know, the scholar and writer N.T. Wright says, idolatry is always the perversion of something good. Idolatry is always the perversion of something good. So while you and I might not literally bow down to a little cement statue or to a little silver icon... You and I still bow down to idols every single day because we take something good and we pervert it. Now, the pastoral team have been working through a book together, and just this last week, we were confronted with the different idols that all of us face, idols of entertainment, where for so many of us, it's just easier to distract ourselves, to waste time, to, to distract us from reality and opportunity. So we turn to our phones and we ignore people. Or we switch on the TV so that we can drown out the chaos around us. And it becomes this idol, just entertain me. And maybe for some of us, the idol isn't entertainment. The, the idol is family. You know, my children are everything to me, and I sacrifice for my children, and I do everything I can for my children. And then when our children move out, we feel empty and hollow because it doesn't fill us. Maybe there are those whose idols are workaholism where we work, to, we, we want to create, we want to have, we want to amass. And when you stop and you ask someone like that, well, how much is enough? They'll say, just a little bit more. And so if I can just keep working, if I can just keep earning, if I can just keep accumulating wealth, because my wealth will protect me. Or for some of us, our idol is really just ourselves. It's me, the individual. It's my own autonomy. I'm the captain of my own ship. I'm the maker of my own destiny. I'm the master of where I'm going. And so my idol is my individualism. It's my autonomy. It's all about me. And really, it doesn't matter which idol it is. The problem, as I said a few weeks ago, all idols demand sacrifice. Even those things that seem good at first, eventually they demand more and more sacrifice. So how do we know if something is an idol? How do we know we've fallen into the sin of idolatry? Well, we ask the question, are we pursuing these things because we believe they will ultimately provide for us? Or will we trust God instead? So how do we confront idolatry? I'm so glad when Lisa was praying earlier on this morning, she prayed around confession and reminding us of how important it is to confess because that's exactly how we confront idolatry. We confess and we repent. You know, Dachau, the author, says, through the practice of confession, we come to recognize and name before God and one another some of the robust forces that misshape our lives and society. Do you get that? We confess. We confess to God and we confess to others around us. We confess the idolatry. We confess those idols that are consuming us. 
In 1 John chapter 1 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. James, James chapter 5 verse 16 says, Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. We cannot get away from the need to confess. And we confess to God what God already knows. And we confess to others so that it comes out into the light and they can walk with us and help us overcome those idols. You know, this was the thrust of Jesus' preaching when Jesus arrived and he said, repent and believe the good news. Repent and receive the kingdom of God. Repentance begins with confession. And once we turn, because that's what repentance literally means, it's to turn around, to turn away. Once we confess our sin, we turn away. But when we turn away, we don't just turn from one idol or one addiction and replace it with another. We turn and we focus on God. We head to God. Rather than giving in to idolatry and to worshiping idols, we go back and we worship God. So we see this, this idolatry in Belshazzar's life. But not only idolatry. This chapter speaks to us about this concept of blasphemy. And when I talk about blasphemy, I know immediately we ask the question, well, what is blasphemy? Is it what Brian did at the beginning of his message when he said, oh my God? Or is there more to it? Is blasphemy more than just some words? You know, I think blasphemy is a bit of both. And we get this concept of blasphemy straight out of the Ten Commandments. Right at the beginning of the Ten Commandments, we read this in Exodus chapter 20. When God spoke all of these words, God said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. One, you shall have no other gods before me. Two, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations for those who love me and keep my commands. And three, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. The Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. You know, in my life, I've had opportunities to do all sorts of crazy things. Uh, Fun things, uh, exciting things, uh, adrenaline rush kind of things. But there's only been one time where I've literally thought, I'm about to die. I'm about to discover if indeed there is a God. Years ago, I was out surfing with some friends. Uh, In fact, it was actually before I started real surfing. And when I say real surfing, I mean stand-up surfing. Before that, I used the bodyboard. That's that little front door sponge, front doormat thing that people ride. Uh, And so I I was on my bodyboard with my two friends. And we were out chasing waves. We had been following some storm swells. We had been following the weather. And we kind of knew where we were expecting to find some good waves. So we traveled out. And we actually ended up in a little spot just outside Cape Town called Pringle Bay. Pringle Bay is not known for its waves. It's not really a a big wave surfing spot or anything like that. But it just happened that the swell direction, the wind direction, everything was working that day. 
So the three of us, 19-year-olds, filled with bravado, uh, yet inwardly terrified because we've never surfed this spot, but we can see the waves breaking off the reef at the back line, uh, and we're like, this is just too good to pass up. So the three of us hop into the water and paddle out into, this, into big waves. And because we don't really know the spot, we're kind of shoulder hopping at first. We're not in the impact zone. Uh, we're just kind of hanging out. And the thing is, in order to catch a good wave, you've actually got to be in the impact zone. So eventually a set comes through and Steve starts paddling and I'm paddling just next to him and he catches the wave and he's effectively in position so I've got no option but to pull out. And as I pull out off the shoulder of this wave with so much water moving, I look back and there's a wave coming in. Now, whenever I tell the story, people always think I'm exaggerating. I need to remind you, I'm a pastor. I don't have to start with, this is no lie. But this is no lie. The wave was the size of a streetlight. So if you don't know how tall I was surfing, you can go outside after today's service, look at a street lamp, there was the wave barreling down on me. And as I came over the shoulder and saw this mountain of water heading at me, I literally uttered two words, oh God. Now, did I blaspheme? Not even close. I was praying because I genuinely thought, oh God, I'm coming to you right now. So is that blasphemy? Is blasphemy taking the Lord's name in vain, simply using the Lord's name in conversation? Not in in that situation. Many people use God's name in, in prayer or in worship. I love the fact that people will come into the office or give me a call or send me an email and in the midst of conversation, they they infuse their conversation with God and it's a sense of worship and it's a sense of prayer. And for many of us, it almost seems foreign because yes, we're so used to the fact that every second person seems to say OMG all the time. I, I had to turn the radio off the other day because there's a new song I don't know how new it is. Let's just say there's a song by a band called The Beaches. What do you what, want what you've got? And their chorus is just a repetition of OMG, 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 OM gone. And of course, if it's not just oh, oh my God, then people seem to throw Jesus into their conversation all the time. You know, I, I have a good friend who's currently not walking with the Lord, but we're working on him. Every now and then, this good friend of mine will say, Jesus H. Christ. And it's typically followed by sorry, because then he looks at me and he remembers that that's my boss. Again, that's his words, not mine. And, And I love him, love him to bits. Not as much as what Jesus loves him, but I do too. And you know, I always used to think that the H in there was his invention, And I never bothered to ask. I was always like, okay, that's just him. That's his personality. I was blown away this week while I was researching to discover that people have been giving Jesus a middle initial of H since the beginning of the 1800s. In fact, the story is pretty hilarious if you go and research the whole thing. Mark Twain refers to this, that it somehow ended up, and how it ended up is hilarious. You see, Jesus Christ used to, be refer- used to be written down in a Greek monogram. And the Greek monogram for Jesus, or Jesus, 
looks exactly like the Latin alphabet letters JHC. It's not JHC, but it just looks, it happens to look like JHC. And we can thank our neighbors south of the border of us for thinking that H became Jesus' middle name. In fact, Mark Twain gives this, this incredible story when he was apprenticing at a printer's shop how a preacher came in and wanted some pamphlets created. Uh, And so as these pamphlets were created, there was an error in the printing shop and it dropped a whole bunch of words. And so the the printer decided to just change everything and simply had JC instead of Jesus Christ. And this preacher was so offended that they would dare to do that for Jesus' name that this preacher said to the printer, no, you have to give Jesus' full name. To which the printer put Jesus H. Christ in these pamphlets, and it's hilarious. Let's get back to Daniel. You see, Belshazzar blasphemes, even though Belshazzar says nothing about God. You see, Belshazzar takes the sacred items, those items that in the book of Deuteronomy, in the book of Leviticus, are, they're given an explanation, and these items are used for worship, They're used in the temple and in the tabernacle. They're used to worship God. And I can imagine Belshazzar knows about these items because they're in the house of his God. And so Belshazzar in this party, and and I have no doubt that they've been drinking wine and perhaps they're not thinking. And so Belshazzar decides, you know what? I want to drink wine out of those golden cups. And he tells them to bring. And he blasphemes by misusing and defiantly being irreverent to the things of God. You see, blasphemy, yes, is a verbal reproach to God's name, his character, and his attributes. But blasphemy is also action that does the same. And that is what Belshazzar does. Blasphemy is a serious crime in God's law. It was so serious that we read of accounts in Leviticus chapter 24 where a man blasphemes the name of God And remember, to the Hebrews, a name wasn't just a convenient label. A name declared who you were. It was that symbolic representation of your character. And so this man blasphemes God. And the Levites stone him to death. I think most of us, maybe too many of us, think that blasphemy is a pretty simplistic thing. It's merely taking the Lord's name in vain. and, And so we... We look at those who say OMG or those who say similar and we think, well, they're the blasphemers. But that's not fully true. That's not fully correct. You see, we who call ourselves disciples of Jesus Christ, we who follow God, we're also responsible to make sure that our behavior doesn't incite others to blaspheme God. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 2. Paul scolds those who claim to be saved through the law and yet who still sin. And using Isaiah 52, Paul says to them, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And so the fact is, every time you or I, and now I'm talking about disciples of Jesus Christ, those who declare Jesus as Lord, every time you and I say or do something that gives others a false representation of the glory, holiness, and authority and character of God, we commit blasphemy. Every time we misrepresent our position as children of God, we damage the name of God. Now, fortunately, we have the New Testament. 
Fortunately, Jesus comes and forgives us and extends life to us. So before we cast stones at others, perhaps we first need to contemplate our own words and our own actions. So how do we respond? What do we do when we read a chapter like Daniel chapter 5? What do we do in those times where we feel like saying OMG as well? Well, that's my point today. How do we say, oh my God? Because I'm not for a moment saying that we should never say, oh my God. I'm simply saying there's a better way of saying it. Scripture actually directs us how to say it. Scripture gives us the words so that we can turn away from idolatry and we can turn away from blasphemy. We can repent, we can confess, and we can come back to God. So how do I say, oh my God? Well, I say it in worship. Psalm 104, verse 1 to 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. We declare, O my God, in worship. We declare, O my God, in prayer. Psalm 59, verse 1, deliver me from my enemies. Oh my God, protect me from those who rise up against me. We declare, oh my God, in worship. We declare, oh my God, in prayer. And then we declare, oh my God, in declaration of obedience. Psalm 40, verse 8, I delight to do your will. Oh my God, your law is within my heart. So how do we say, oh my God? We say it in worship. We say it in prayer. And we say it in declaration as we obey the will of God. We say it with reverence as we worship God. And so, when we find ourselves in the face of circumstances that seem well beyond our control, just like Belshazzar and Daniel did, as they find themselves surrounded by the enemy, We have one of two options. We can either blaspheme and trust idols, which is what Belshazzar did, or we can worship and trust God and allow God to give the outcome. Let's pray together. Oh my God, I come before you with humble thanksgiving that you are God and you are good. And I know, God, even today, as I've used that expression, oh my God, for many of us, it connates images of blasphemy because we've been taught we can never say those words. And it just gets conformed and confirmed to us when we hear them being used so out of context. When we hear people who do not worship you, who do not declare you as king, uttering those words. But oh my God, teach us not to judge or to condemn because you're still God, you're still on the throne. You're still at work even in those people's lives. And I can only pray that over time, those who would blaspheme would turn into those who would worship and that they would see exactly who you are. They would discover life through Jesus Christ. And then, God, for us, for we who call ourselves disciples, my God, forgive us 
Forgive us for blaspheming you by our actions. Forgive us for the idolatry that we so easily turn to. Worshipping the creature, worshipping those things created rather than worshipping our very creator God. And so God, this morning, I thank you for the book of Daniel. I thank you for the life and witness and testimony of Daniel. And I thank you for this recorded for us in Daniel chapter 5, seeing two men in the same circumstance, in the same situation, and how they respond in relation to you. God, help us to be like Daniel. Help us to trust you. Help us to worship you. And help us to be faithful so that those around us would hear you through our lives. May we be a testimony to your glory, your greatness, and your goodness. And indeed, may those around us respond by saying, Oh my God, thank you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.